Today we have Article 7, the church. You can read with me here on the screen. We believe in the one holy universal church made up of all who trust Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and supreme treasure of their lives. We believe that God calls us to unite with other believers in local churches to help each other to value Christ above all, to praise him together, to grow in our love and knowledge of him, to stir each other up to good works, and to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. We believe that Christians should be baptized and regularly eat the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, you are high and lifted up in heaven and in earth, and no matter what we see, no matter what we feel, no matter what we think, that's a fact that remains unchanged and will remain unchanged forever. You are the one who created the heavens and the earth, Father, by nothing more than your will and the power of your word. You are the one, Father, who sustains it all by nothing more than the word of your power. You are the one who has purposes and makes promises and fulfills them all the way to the end. And you're the only one in the universe, Lord, that can fulfill exactly what he wants to do without even any possibility of other people thwarting your plans. You're that great. You're that powerful. Nothing will stop you. Lord, you're the one who willed that the church come into being. You're the one who called it your body and your bride and your holy temple. You're the one who made great and gracious promises to us through Abraham and through Moses and all the prophets and all the kings and mainly through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you're the one who's going to carry us all the way to the very end, to that great and glorious day when we enter into a marriage ceremony between the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his precious bride, the church. Lord, the church is in your hands. Jesus, you yourself said that you give us eternal life and that we will never perish and that no one will snatch us out of your hands. You said that the Father who is greater than all has given us to you and that no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hands and you and the Father are one. And so we rest secure, Lord, in your vision, in your purposes, in your power, in your promises. And we thank you for what you have done and for what you will do in the life of the church through this local church and through the church in a global sense. And I pray today, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see as you see and you would give us a heart to feel as you feel and you would give us a desire to act as you would have us act. Please, Lord, help us grow all the more into your image, into your vision um, for your pleasure and for your glory. We pray these things, Lord, in the mighty, the matchless, the merciful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, will you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21? I want to actually begin this morning by reading the entire chapter with you because I think that as we read it carefully, it will help us to gain eyes to see what Jesus sees when he sees the church, and hopefully it'll help us to gain a heart to feel what Jesus feels when he sees the church. So I want to begin at verse 1, and then I am going to stop here and there 
uh, to make some comments. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I want to pause there for a second. Because we know from Ephesians chapter 5, and more immediately in the context from Revelation chapter 19, that John is writing here about the church when he uses uh, this term, the bride. We know that for sure. And we know that when he uses the term husband, he's referring to Jesus Christ. So when he uses this language of the new Jerusalem, he's talking about the church. The Bible begins with a a wedding in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, and the Bible ends with a wedding in heaven between Jesus Christ and his holy bride, the church. And so as we continue reading, just understand this is the vision. In the beginning of chapter 19 in Revelation, the wedding announcement was put out, so to speak. And now in Revelation chapter 21, the consummation is actually coming to pass. So then in verse 3, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is not a little whisper, this is a roar, this is a thunder. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If you've been reading the Bible or even listening to sermons for any amount of time, you'll recognize that term. That's an, that's an ancient phrase. I don't mean just the term, but this phrase, that, that, that you will be God's people and God will be with you as, as your God. This is a phrase that the Lord has been using to describe his relationship with his people since the days of Moses when he entered into a sort of marriage covenant, if you will, with Israel at Mount Sinai. And from Moses forward, God has repeatedly used this phrase to describe how he feels about his people. And the fulfillment of this phrase is not that God will somehow abstractly dwell with his people in some way that's hard to understand or conceive or see or feel, but the fulfillment of this phrase is the day when Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, marries his bride, the church. That is the fulfillment of this famous promise that you will, he will dwell with us and he will be our God and we will be his people. It's the promise of a marriage, beloved. That's what's in view here. The marriage of the, of the lamb and his bride is the fulfillment of these famous and ancient words. Verse four. And he will wipe away from their eyes, the eyes of his bride, every tear and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Praise God for that moment. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, for the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now there in verse 7, you see that the metaphor changes from husband and bride to fathers and to the father and his sons, each of us who believe. And that, of course, includes all females as well who believe in Christ. Well, this shift shows us that the metaphor of the husband and the bride is just that. It's a metaphor. It's not as though it's a, a, an actual literal reality in every sense of the word that Jesus is like a husband and the church is like a bride. The, the Bible uses a, a, a number of metaphors to describe this relationship. So it is just a metaphor, but beloved, it's an extraordinarily powerful metaphor that God did not just flippantly throw out there. I cannot think of a more intimate way of expressing the relationship between God Almighty and his church than to compare it to a husband and a wife, to a husband and his precious bride. I cannot imagine a better way that God could have given us a living metaphor of what he sees when he sees the church and feels when he looks upon the church than giving us the gift of marriage, a husband and a wife who deeply love one another and are committed for life to one another and and share in everything with one another, body, soul, and spirit. This is a metaphor. God is trying to help us see this is what I see when I see the church. This is what I feel when I feel for the church. It's a powerful, powerful metaphor, and certainly it's still in mind as we pick up in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues, and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain like Kevin and and his family had been upon, but a much higher mountain, a much greater view. And he blew the the fog away. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so we should be envisioning a bridal procession here. The bride of Christ is entering the sanctuary, if you will, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great and high walls with 12 gates and the gates and and at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 1,200 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. I can't imagine what gold looks like when it's clear like that, but that's the vision here. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, 
The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure like transparent glass. He's describing the beauty of his bride, beloved. He's describing a bride coming into a marriage a sanctuary, all decked out and ready for the great big moment. And I saw no temple in this city, in this precious bride of Christ, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Beloved, we would so profoundly benefit from meditating long and hard on texts like this, understanding that Jesus is painting a picture for us here. He's trying to help us see what he sees when he sees the church and how we desperately need his help. When we look at a particular church, or when we look at a a group of churches in a city, or even in a, a state or a nation, when we look at the state of the church around the world, we see a mixture of things with our eyes, and that's understandable. There are many imperfections left in the church. There's much brokenness left in the church, in every local church and in the church in a global sense. Some of this is visible, some of it is invisible. Some of it is disappointing, some of it is just downright depressing. Some of it is outside of ourselves. Some of it is seen when we look into the mirror and think carefully about our own brokenness. It's understandable that when we look at the church, we see a mixture of things and we feel a mixture of feelings. But beloved, we have to understand that our Lord and Savior, our Master, our supreme treasure, sees glorious things when he looks upon the church. He really does. This is not just theology, not just fodder for a sermon. This is reality. Christ sees glorious things when he sees the church local and the church around the world. He is God. And therefore, nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing is beyond his grasp. He sees everything. He knows everything. He is not unaware of the flaws and difficulties that are in every local church and in the church at large but he is hyper aware of the promises that God made to his bride from before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ is hyper aware of the power and implications of his life, death, burial, and resurrection for the life of the church. Jesus is hyper aware of the eternal destiny of the church. He sees in all its glory the glory with which he will clothe us one day and which we will shine, with which we will shine forever and ever. And he knows in his heart that that glory is an answer to his prayer 
Because in John chapter 17, you can read it on your own later, Jesus asked the Father, please, Father, allow me to share with my church, with my bride, the glory that I have shared with you from the foundation of the world. The glory that Christ will put upon us is the very glory of God. And when Jesus looks at us now, he sees who we will be then as though it's all already come to pass. Believe me, beloved. Believe me, when Christ looks upon the church, he sees great and glorious things. Now, I know that we've looked at this passage many times. We'll look at it many more times in the future. But would you please turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 2? I want to read with you just the first seven verses. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7. These verses help give us a glimpse into what Christ did in turning this innumerable band of sinners into saints and then marrying them as his bride. It's just stunning what he did. This last uh, August, whenever it was, late July, early August, when I had my vacation time, I spent a lot of time carefully meditating on all the fighter verses that we've memorized so far. So not just rehearsing them in my mind, but really savoring them, tasting them, thinking about it word by word by word. And when I got to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I have to tell you, I've thought about these verses so much over the years. For those of you who have been around a long time, you remember I preached through these things six, seven years ago now. So I've been thinking about this passage a long time, but it just hit me with such, fresh, with such freshness, with such depth, and I pray that it will do that for us now. Hear what the Lord has done for his bride, the church. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. That's something to think about. Following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So because of our sin and because of the sin of the world, the influence of Satan, we were doomed to receive the wrath of God. And Paul would later say in Ephesians that we were without hope. We were completely alienated. We were cut off. We were without hope in the world. And then verse 4, just the stunning grace of God. But God, being rich in mercy, overflowingly wealthy with mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, So not after we had sort of turned the corner, started coming back to him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, walking away from him, rebelling against him, stabbing him in the back, even then he made us alive together with Christ. And don't forget that Christ is the one through whom God created everything. We've been made one with him by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that's stunning I don't even know what that means but that's stunning so that in the coming ages forever and ever and ever and ever God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, toward the church in Christ Jesus. Beloved, 
The Lord is not blind to the real issues that exist in local churches and in each of our hearts. He's not blind to the problems in the global church and so much chaos that exists not just in the world, but in our own midst with all the denominations and difficulties and all of that stuff. But somehow, someway, when he looks upon the church, he sees great and glorious things which were bought and paid for by the overflowing grace of God that manifested itself in and through him and that will have its effect forever and ever and ever. I remember hearing John MacArthur one day. I was just listening to a message of, him, of his on the, online or whatever, and I remember him. He just kind of threw up his hands for about five minutes and said, I don't get it. Why does God allow all this chaos? And he was talking about inside the church. He's like, I just don't understand sometimes. Sometimes it's just confusing to me. Like, why doesn't God just straighten it all out? I don't know the answer to the question. I actually appreciated that John didn't even answer his own question. He just sort of sat with the, with the discomfort. But he, like I'm about to do now, pressed on to say, but for whatever reason Jesus has, he is not confused about the church He is not out of control. In fact, when we get to the end of all time and we look back and see how he he did what he did and why he did what he did, we will say that was the best way that it could have been done. We will say, glory be to his name. He is a great and gracious Savior. But beloved, right now, when various difficulties and confusions reign around the world in the life of the church, Jesus looks upon us and sees us for what we will be in that final day. He is an amazing, amazing God. He thinks so much of us that he calls us his very body. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, 22 to 23, God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church who is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Jesus looks upon the church, he sees a holy temple in which he's dwelling right now and in which he will dwell forever and ever and ever. And despite all of our flaws, when Jesus looks upon the church, he sees a beautiful, gorgeous, stunning, attractive bride to which he will be married forever and ever and which is slowly but surely being transformed into his image by the mercy of God and the power of the cross and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Jesus looks upon us and sees the one to whom he is engaged and the one to whom he will be married forever and ever and ever. And when Christ looks upon the church in the context of the world, in the context of all the evil and craziness that's happening in the world, he sees the kingdom of God upon the earth. He sees the light of his glory breaking into the kingdom of darkness through his precious bride, through his weak bride, through his still yet flawed bride. And surely he rejoices because he knows this, that no matter what she has to suffer, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross and his presence in our midst and his promises upon us are stronger than anything Satan can throw at us. Even the spirit of division which he is seeking to sow in the life of every church around the world, even the spirit of persecution which is affecting so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, even the spirit of death and destruction and dismemberment that some of our brothers and sisters right this moment likely are facing in Iraq and Syria and other very dangerous parts of the world. The Lord knows the end from the beginning, beloved. He rejoices because he knows the power and certainty of the promises that he's made to his bride. For instance, Revelation 2.10. When I preach this in India, the people there who are, who are preparing to suffer greatly, probably over the next two, three, four, five years, they just responded so well to this. They received it as, as a fresh drink of water or something like that. Be faithful unto death, Jesus says, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus knows, beloved, that no matter what kind of vicious lion Satan is, he himself is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And remember, the name Judah means praise. So as he, the lion of the tribe of praise, stands up and roars with the praises of God, he, he in that way slays the enemies with the sword of his mouth. Satan can wreak havoc, beloved, but he is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. It seems so often that he's in control. It seems so often that we are out of control, but Jesus doesn't feel like that. He's letting us suffer so that we can become like him in his suffering. And Jesus knows that he is the final conqueror who will protect and prosper his precious bride until the day when Revelation chapter 21 actually comes to pass. And all of the suffering is done and the bride is presented to him, and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. He removes pain. He removes death. He removes suffering. He removes division. He removes misunderstanding. He removes theological confusion. He removes it all. We're absolutely in the blink of an eye, made to be perfect like him and one with him together. He sees that day now, beloved, and he lives as though it's true. He is neither blind nor ignorant. He sees everything. He knows everything. He penetrates through the secret thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He takes our sin very seriously and he cares very much about the remaining flaws that are in his bride. He does not take our sin lightly, but beloved, our Savior is immeasurably great. He is immeasurably gracious and he has purposed in his heart to make his precious bride holy as he is holy. And tell me something, who is going to stop him from doing that? What in the world will stop Jesus from doing what he has purposed to do? He said he would make his bride to be without spot and blemish. That's going to happen, period, and end of story. And beloved, that's where our hope lies. That's where our joy lies. That's why all we really have to do in this life is look to Christ and believe in him because all the heavy lifting is upon his shoulders. Nothing else in all creation. I've thought about this a lot. You know, sometimes preachers make like sweeping statements and they're probably exaggerations, but I don't think this is actually an exaggeration. You can push back on me if you'd like here. But I really think it's true to say that nothing else in all creation is so precious to Jesus Christ as his bride. 
I'm not talking about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit here. I'm saying outside of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they created. When he looks at all creation, I don't think there's a single thing in creation that's more precious to Jesus than his bride, not even the angels of heaven. We are incredibly precious to him. And see, the thing about it is that when we talk about this big picture, the bride of Christ, we have to sort of... uh, Take, put the telescope away and then take out a microscope and realize he's actually talking about each and every single one of us. Jesus has grand and glorious visions of the church. He sees every church throughout time, throughout history, and in every place of the world. Somehow, he's got the eyes to see it all at once. I can't even imagine what he sees when he sees the church. Really, I've sat before for a long time, just sat with my eyes closed and tried to imagine, Lord, what's it like when you look through the centuries and see the whole church? I can't take it in. I can't take it in. But what I do know is that beyond that grand and glorious vision, he also has a very particular and a very personal vision in which he sees every single person throughout the world and throughout time. He sees us face by face. He calls us name by name. Pretty stunning. God says in Isaiah 43, 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. So indeed, the Lord loves his bride in a grand and global sense, and he loves his bride in an intimate and individual sense. So when he thinks what he thinks about the church, beloved, he thinks this way about us. In one sense, we don't want to get too individualistic and self-centered about it, but in one sense, we need to look in the mirror and say, the Lord feels this way about me. The Lord sees these things in me. The Lord feels these things for me. It's just stunning to me, beloved, the, the grandeur of his vision and the intimacy of his vision. Those things together just take my breath away. They really do. Now, I've told you this story several times over the years, but I just can't help myself. I'm going to tell it again because it's just... I just can't get it off my mind, and I think it would be appropriate to share here. When Kimmy and I were still living in California, I was sitting one day in our living room in our comfy chair that we got rid of years ago, but was one of those kickback chairs. I can't remember what you call them anymore. But I was sitting in that chair, and Kim was sitting on my lap, and we weren't talking. I mean, for the longest time, probably you know, 15, 30 minutes or something, we weren't talking. We were just sitting there together. I was holding her. We're enjoying each other's company, and we're just sharing in our common love for each other. I can never tell the story without getting emotional because I remember what it felt like. I'm sitting there holding her and really out of left field, I just felt overwhelmed with love for Kim. I can hardly describe it to you. I have felt this kind of love before but never in that intensity, that quality, that purity and I'm not sure I've ever really felt it since. Like in that depth of intensity, it was overpowering to me. Just like a flood of love for this woman coming over my heart. And it kind of stunned me. And so as I was sitting there, just in the quietness of my heart, she didn't know anything. We're just sitting there together. But in the quietness of my heart, I said, Jesus, what is this about? What am I feeling? What is this? And in my heart, I sensed him whisper to me, Charlie, this is what I feel for the church. This is a, a glimpse of how I feel about the church. Now I'll leave it to you to test whether or not the Lord himself was actually speaking to me, but I'll tell you from my part, that experience has made a humongous impact on my life because I'm a thinker. I've gone to college, I've been to seminary, got three degrees, working on a fourth degree. I'm a thinker. I like thinking. Thinking's a good thing. 
It's important to search the scripture and see what God thinks about the church. But an experience like this helped me to understand that he doesn't just think about the church, he feels. He feels with an enormous depth for the church, like an enormity of depth that we cannot understand. And just that little glimpse, that little moment has been enough for me to live on for the last 12 or 15 years since it happened, just to help me remember that little taste that I got about how he feels for us, beloved. This isn't just the church in some abstract sense. He's talking about us, and it stuns me. The more I know of who Jesus is, just the the greatness of who he is, I just can't imagine how intimate he also is, how how loving he is, how tender he is. So it's important for us to think carefully, to, to craft theological statements about the church. That's really important. It matters that we get it right, what we believe and what we do not believe. This really matters. Ideas have consequences, right? It matters. But it matters that we also uh, inflame our hearts with feeling for the things that we believe. And Christ feels beyond what we can imagine for his bride. He really does. Just read Revelation 21 again on your own time. Read it slowly, carefully, savor every word, and ask the Lord to help you to see what he sees and feel what he feels when he looks upon the church. Because I believe that if we'll do that, we'll come more into the fullness of what it means for us to be Christians, what it means for us to do life together, what it means for us to be a witness to the world. And so with all that in mind, I want to take just a few minutes now and and address the question, if all these things are so, then how should we be living? If the things that we've seen about what Christ sees in the church are true, and they are true, either they're true or the Bible's false. The Bible's not false, so they are true. If all of that is true, then how should we live? And I just have three practical things for us today. The first one is that we should believe in this Jesus Christ who is so great and gracious. We should surrender our lives to the God who is so enormously loving toward a people who are so incredibly undeserving. It's it's unbelievable that God would treat any human beings this way, much less people who were sinning against him, rebelling against him. But so great is the grace of God that he takes enemies and turns them into his bride. Who can conceive a grace so great as that? So if you have never believed in Jesus Christ before, I plead with you to believe in him who gave his all that we might have all. There is life in Jesus Christ true and eternal and satisfying life in Jesus Christ. So I plead with you to believe. If you have bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and if you're trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of all your sins and for the security of your eternity, then I want to urge you to join me in fanning that love into flame. I want to urge you to join me in not being complacent, not allowing ourselves to become idle, to become tired, to become overwhelmed with life and just sort of stop seeking Jesus or just put it on automatic pilot and really not you know, do much of anything to fan our love into flame. I want to encourage us to, to not become bored with Jesus Christ, but to keep pressing into the things that we already think we know. Like I said, a good example is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, because, beloved, I could quote the entire thing from memory. I could literally preach for weeks and weeks on that passage without even having notes because it's so deep inside my heart. And yet, a couple weeks ago, I'm sitting by Lake Winona meditating upon it, and it's landing upon me like I've never heard it before. There's so much depth in the word of God and in the heart of our God. So don't let yourself get bored. Fan your love into flame. Let your eyes get bigger. Let your heart grow stronger for, for love in Jesus. 
Remember that we were saved by simple belief in him and he calls us only to live by simple belief in him. A verse that's becoming extraordinarily important in my life these days is John 6, 29, which says that this is the work of God. This is the work of all who would want to pursue God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The only uh, learning to live by faith in Christ is our one and only work in life. That's the lesson that I get here. Learning to live by faith in Christ is our one and only work in this life. All we have to do is learn to surrender to him and trust him and believe in him. So again, if everything that he's shown us today is true, and it is true, then let us live by faith in him who's done it all for us, beloved. Let us fix our eyes upon him and put our hope in in this, that we have a God who keeps his promises He promised to perfect his bride and bring us to the wedding to end all weddings that will stun us forever. And he's going to do that. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Moses, faithful to all the prophets, faithful to the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth, faithful to all the apostles, faithful to the church throughout the centuries. He will be faithful to us. He is a faithful God. Amen. Never once have we ever walked alone. He is faithful. He is faithful. A second implication of what we've talked about today is that we should search search the scriptures with a humble heart and pray for eyes to see what Jesus sees and feel what Jesus feels when he sees the church. Paul said in Ephesians 1.17, he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And that's what we need. We need more than a habit of reading the Bible. We need this gift from the Holy Spirit that when we open up the Bible and we begin to read and meditate, that he would open up our eyes and allow us to see things that we cannot see on our own. And God is gracious. He longs to give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the spirit of sight and the spirit of insight the spirit of seeing and the spirit of understanding what we see. But we have to pray for this, beloved. We have to search for it like it's a treasure. We have to go after it. We have to put aside our gadgets and our hobbies and so many distractions in our lives and say, Jesus is the primary treasure in my life and I'm gonna go after him. So I wanna encourage you to look again at Revelation 21 on your own or read the book of Romans. I recently, uh, over the summer, I read Romans in my own personal quiet times and again, I just was just like, wow, that's an amazing book. No wonder John Piper took eight and a half years to preach through it. It's like there's a lot there. Read Ephesians, a smaller book. Read uh, James, an even smaller book, something. Pray for eyes to see what Jesus sees when he sees the church. And beloved, I promise you that if you will do that, God will change your life. He really will. You will never think the same about your beloved brothers and sisters, and you will act differently toward them. Third point of application for us is, is this. As our eyes open wide to the grace of God in Christ, And let us give heed to the mountain of commands that teach us how to live together as Christians in this life. There's so many of them. Let us value the wisdom of Jesus for the practical daily life of the church over our own wisdom, over our own desires, over our own wants, over our own needs. And one of the best ways to get to this is just to pay close attention to the many one another commands in the New Testament. I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 13. This is the last place we'll turn today. 
John chapter 13. I want to read verses 34 through 35 because I believe that the chief one another command, the, the, the head one another command, the most important one is found in John chapter 13. And every other one another command sort of fills out what this means. So John chapter 13, starting in verse 34. Jesus speaking. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as I said, in my view, this is the primary one another command, and all the other ones fill out what it means. They fill out what it looks like. So what does it mean to love one another? Well, there's all kinds of other commands that help us to understand, but I don't want to pass beyond this too quickly because it's extraordinarily important. On, on one hand, that there's really nothing new to what Jesus is saying here because if you look back, like let's say at the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see that Moses commanded the law of love way back then. The law of God has always been the law of love. The law to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the law to love our neighbor as ourself is in the, the law of Moses, right? Jesus was interpreting the law of Moses when he said that love uh, fulfills the entire law. So in one sense, the Lord's not saying anything new here at all. This has been the ancient command of God from the very beginning. But I do think that what's new here is that Jesus is calling his blood-bought followers to love one another in the same way that he loved us and with the same power with which he loved us. In other words, he's calling us to take up our crosses on a daily basis and die to our own interests and wants and needs and give our attention to loving and serving and even sacrificing for other people. He doesn't just want us to love in convenient ways. He wants us to love in self-sacrificial ways so that we'll be like him. He doesn't want us to live for our own desires only, but for his desires and the blessings of other people. You don't need to turn there, but you'll probably remember where Paul said in Ephesians or Philippians chapter 2, he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to say that we should grasp on to the mind of Jesus Christ, which belongs to us in Christ Jesus, the kind of mind that had Godhood in his grasp, and yet let it all go. In a sense, he emptied himself, came to the earth, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient to his Father all the way to death on a cross, and he did that for the glory of God in our salvation. He did that for us. And Paul says, act like your Savior. That's what it means, love one another as I have loved you. It means, it's a, it's a miracle, beloved. It's impossible to do on our own. But Jesus is saying, come be like me, die to yourself, see others with the eyes that I would see, and then love them accordingly. He is calling us to a kind of love that the world knows nothing of. He's not just saying, be nice to each other. Social clubs can do that. He's saying, come and lay your lives down with a kind of love that only I could produce in the life of the church. And over time, beloved, as we learn to walk in that kind of self-sacrificial love, not only do we grow in Christ, but you know what ends up happening? The Lord said right here, by this, everybody is going to know that, you're, that you belong to me. They're going to know that you're Christians by your love for one another. In other words, the love that we share is going to proclaim the gospel in our cities. 
people are going to look and say, I know people who care about each other, but I have not seen a love like that before. That's unusual. What's that about? Where does that come from? How can I participate in that? Tim Keller um, insightfully wrote this. He said, Christian community is more than just the result of preaching the gospel. It is itself a declaration, an expression of the gospel. So when the gospel is preached, it's not just that it forms churches, but that church then becomes a means by which the gospel is being preached. The very life of the church is a witness to our city. It is. And so Christ is saying, my precious blood-bought people, come and be like me. Love with the love that I love with. It's impossible for you to do this on your own, but in me, through me, by me, for me, you can love with my love. And I pray with all my heart, beloved, that we will learn to do that. As we gain eyes to see what Jesus sees, as we gain hearts to feel what Jesus feels, we will gain the will and the power to act as Jesus would have us act toward one another. We will gain the desire and the ability to lay our lives down for the good of others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what the pain, no matter what the price. Our present ability to endure things in the life of the church is a sort of barometer of our present vision of the cross. The more enormously we see the cross, the more that we can endure in practical horizontal situations. We can say, yep, here's this problem, and here's the size of the cross, right? Christ is so great, so mighty, so gracious, we can deal with this. Even massive things, like what's happening in Ferguson, Missouri right now, not simple issues, Very deep-seated, serious issues. What's happening in Iraq and Syria and Israel right now? Not simple issues, but beloved, the cross towers above them all. And by the power of the cross, we can endure anything in the life of a family, a local church, the church at large, because Christ is just that big. The more we gain eyes to see, the more we can press on it in love. And that's my prayer today, that we would gain those eyes and gain that will. Now, most of you are aware that there is some tension in the life of our church right now regarding the way that we're structuring small groups, which we call community groups. Last time that we had our members meeting, we had a good discussion. Sometimes it was a pretty intense discussion, but I think that was good for people to get their hearts out and we could begin conversing about this and that. And some of those conversations have continued, and I think that's a good thing and a very healthy thing. The elders are going to be meeting this coming Saturday, and in part, we're going to be praying and deliberating and making some adjustments to the way that we do life together here at GCF, and I invite you to pray for us, and I want you to know that in three Sundays from now, if the Lord is willing, that I'll be saying a lot more about the the particulars of how the Lord is leading us to lead the church, because that Sunday is already set aside as sort of a a vision-casting Sunday. So on that Sunday, we'll be making some some major uh, announcements. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but we will be speaking with some clarity about what we see as we're sort of receiving feedback and trying to discern from the Lord what he would have us do. But for right now, I want to encourage you to work really hard with us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and to seek him with humility and passion until we gain bigger eyes to see what he sees when he sees the church and bigger hearts to feel what he feels when he looks at the church. Because if we can gain that vision, beloved, then we can work in a healthy way to deal with any problems that ever face us. Right now, relatively, these are small problems. I, I've been in a, in a church before where a pastor committed adultery. That was disastrous. 
just disastrous. I've been in church situations before where there was church funds being embezzled, and it's just disastrous stuff, all right? So if you look at what we're facing right now compared to what we could be facing, the Lord will help us. He will help us through this. And I'm telling you, there's not a crisis that will ever hit this church that we cannot get through by the enormity of the power of the cross. So if we gain eyes to see him, we will gain hope to press on. And that's what I'm asking for. First and foremost, the thing that's most important is not the particulars of what we decide together, but that we fix our eyes on Christ and keep pressing forward together for the sake of his name. If we do not gain that vision, then on paper we could create a perfect system that makes everybody happy. I mean, we know that's never going to happen, but because it's just not possible in any kind of human context. But even if we could create a perfect system that makes everybody happy and we did not have eyes to see what Christ sees, then it's just all for naught, right? We would still be missing the point and we cannot afford to miss the point because heaven and hell are on the line here. So please, I'm just asking you this morning to hear my heart and to follow our leadership and to pray for the elders as we deliberate and pray and try to listen to the various things that we're hearing and seek a way forward that will be pleasing to Jesus and helpful to, to everybody. But for now, again, let's pray right now. Let's pray and ask God to help us have eyes to see. Lord Jesus, we love you so much, and we are so grateful that you are actually the senior pastor of this church. You are the leader of this church. You're the one who called it into being, and you're the one who will preserve us and protect us and prosper us all the way to, the, to, to our dying day when we meet you face to face. Lord, the heavy burden is upon you. Lord, you have a glorious vision for this particular church and for every church in this city and state and nation and even around the world. Lord, you have a vision that's beyond anything that we could actually grasp. But I do pray that you would grant to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. I pray that you would open our eyes more that we could see what you see. Lord, I just know in my heart that if we as a people will see more clearly, then we will be able to love with your love. And so I ask you for that, Lord. And, and I, I ask it with joy because I have the faith to know that you've heard our prayer. And so by faith, I want to thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' mighty and merciful and matchless name we pray, amen.